I'd like for you to turn to the book of Colossians, the little epistle to the Colossian church. To chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. I would encourage you to read this entire chapter because the text comes from the context of chapter 3. And it would be helpful if you could familiarize yourself with it. And today I want to talk about the, uh, the development of an environment of peace as it relates to our relationships in the dorm or at home or in marriage. And I'll read verses 12, beginning verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I think we have to remind ourselves that these words were written to brand new Christians, hearing them for uh, perhaps the first time. Now, this is old stuff to us. We've heard this a thousand times before. And there is a deadening familiarity with them, and so they just kind of go in one ear and out the other. But these words, when they, and phrases, when these Colossians read them, were being heard or read for the first time. And they were drawing these people out of a lifestyle into a totally different way of life, which was at right angles to paganism. And I think we need to be reminded from time to time that words addressed to that culture meant something different than to our culture. And so when Paul talks about being loving and kind and gentle and having a forgiving spirit, that culture would have, been, would have responded like this. Those are characteristics of weakness, of a loser, of failure. Now what he's doing, he's dealing with in chapter 3 is the nature of, of Christian relationships. And he begins the chapter like this. If you have really risen with Christ, if you have really chosen to follow the call of Christ to this new existence, to this new living, then look above to the, to the quality of life to which you have been called. Look above to this new kind of life which reveals itself in how you relate to another person as a human being. And he's saying, in effect, that if you live as a Christian ought to live, it will impact your marriage, your employment, your family, your dorm situation. It will impact that in a tremendous way. And he begins in verse 5 to tell us how Christians are not to act to one another. And he says, in essence, that 
Before you can live newly, you have to stop living oldly. And he uses the metaphor of old clothes. And he says there are some things that you have to put out of your life before you can put on a new life. These things have to be discarded. You have to deliberately do that. God doesn't zap you and just take them out of your life. You have to, as an act of your will, discard certain things to begin to live this new quality of life. Now what are these things? Well, there's a grocery list of all of these things. Now we need to understand, I remind you, that, that these seemed obvious to us, but it wasn't obvious to these new Christians in, in Colossae. Immoral behavior. He says, you can't live like that anymore. Exploitation, intimidation, unforgiveness. You can't live like that anymore. You have to put those kinds of things out of your life. And then he comes to verse 12 to describe the new wardrobe. And in an explosive and dynamic way, he says, Put on this, and he begins to describe how a person is to live. To put on this, and he talks about kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love and forbearing one another. And he's trying to help us see this enormously different lifestyle of a believer. And he's trying to help us to get our finger upon the fact that there is a new level, a new standard of life that every Christian ought to live. And then he just drops a little phrase into that, into that discussion that we often pass over. We just kind of fly by it, but it really is the essence of what it means to live as a, in relational theology with someone else. This is the phrase. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And what he's saying is this, that there, are no, there is no collection of relationships, whether it is in families or in, in marriage or, in, or in, in school or in employment, that will make an impact on its environment unless the peace of Christ rules there. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that letting the peace of Christ rule in our relationships is not a very high priority for most of us. A few months ago, a man was driving to, the, to work in Wichita, Kansas, and he was on the, on the uh, uh, bypass that went around the city, the freeway. And as he was driving along, he thought to himself, I believe I'll go into Dunkin' Donuts and get some donuts so that my employees can have a treat at break time. And just as he thought of that idea, bang, he saw the exit toward the, that went down to the Dunkin' Donut shop. And so he, he knew he had to, he had to go take that exit right away, but he, was, he had to cross a lane, so he, he checked his rearview mirror and didn't see anybody, but there was a car in the blind spot, <laughs> you know, that, that point, that's, you know, right behind where he couldn't see. And so as he darted across the lane, this car that was in the blind spot slammed on his guy, slammed on his brakes, did a fishtail, and almost wrecked. He, got, he pulled it out, and the guy went on down the exit ramp. As he went down the exit ramp, he looked in the rearview mirror, and this guy was following him. And he followed him as he turned toward the Dunkin' Donut shop, and he right in behind him. And as he pulled into the Dunkin' Donut shop, the guy pulled right up beside him. Now, he said, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, nah, I'm not, in a, you know, I'm not really in a mood for a bare knuckle fist fight with anybody. Then he said, when this guy got out of the car, he said, I definitely was not. Big old guy, he said, 
he got out of the car and he walked over and he stood right in, at, the, at the headlight on the left side and just glared at me. And he said, I'm sitting there, you know, kind of, you know, going like, you know, that. he just glared. He said, for 90 seconds, he just stared at me with a glare. Then he said he got into his car and drove off. Now, the offender was quick enough to, to get the license number and the make of car, and when he got to the office, he called one of his friends down at City Hall, and he got the name of the guy who drove that car and where he worked. So he got in his car, and he drove down to where the guy worked, walked into his office, and said, You don't know me, but I cut you off this morning on the freeway, and I, want, I just came to tell you that I'm sorry, and I want you to forgive me. And the guy said, I don't believe what I'm hearing. He said, sit down, guy, and let's talk a little bit. So the guy sat down, and they talked for two hours, and the bottom line was this, that the offender led the offended driver to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what was going on there? Let me tell you what was going on. Here was a man who had the peace of Christ in his heart. Not that he said, you know, I went to church this morning, I feel so good, I've been disciple now weekend, and I'm on fire, I'm pumped. It wasn't that at all. It was that the fact that this man had the peace of Christ ruling in his life, and it just flowed out to affect the people around him. And I'm absolutely convinced that the way that the church or any Christian group will ever impact the world around it is that the peace of Christ flows from their life to touch other people. And in this hostile, violent, troubled world, everybody's looking for some evidence that there is a place of sanctuary and comfort and peace. I'm afraid, however, that the peace of Christ does not rule in the lives of many of us. Many of us are kind of like the disciples who stood outside the Samaritan village and they found out that they weren't welcome there, and specifically Jesus wasn't welcome there. And so blissful, wonderful, spiritual disciples, Peter, James, and John said, I know what let's do, Lord. Let's nuke them. Let's blow them away. Let's do what Elijah did. Let's burn them like a piece of bacon rind. And I'm afraid that some of us have that, have that kind of attitude. Now, for those of you who, are take, who like to take notes, both of you, I want to tell you that the rest of my remarks this morning are divided into three parts. Now what? Part one. We need to get a definition for the word peace. In the context of, um, of, of this passage, what does the word peace mean? It doesn't mean what it used to mean. Here are two opposing armies, and they're fighting, and they decide that there's too much bloodshed, and so they sign a treaty, an armistice. We call that peace. That's not the peace of Christ. Here are three old guys lying in a gutter. They have their heads resting on the curb. They have a, in their clutch is an empty wine bottle, and they're at peace. They're, they're asleep. Looks like they're pretty peaceful there. But to crawl inside of a bottle and go to sleep is not to be at peace. And here is a man who has a turbulent marriage and so he runs off to the arms of his lover and everything is blissful and wonderful and his problems in his marriage are gone forever. But that is not the peace of Christ. Now the peace of Christ is that which Jesus exuded in his life every day. 
And he gathers his disciples together in the, in the 15th chapter of John. There's a record of it. And he says, my peace I give to you. Now you understand that the, that the opposition was mounting and hatred was growing and anger was everywhere and death was present. And he's telling his disciples, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. There's something different about the, what I have found. It's positive reinforcement. It's a place where people can grow and mature. If you want to know what peace is like, what peace looks like, you read again Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 because in those two chapters we find a marvelous description of the peace of God. There's the broad scope of peace outlined there. There's the perfect context to peace because everything God has created is in sync with each other and it's moving toward purposes and goals. And there is peace in relationship and growth and there is an environment there where people are permitted to grow and become in the process of, be, of becoming everything that God created them to be. And where you don't find that kind of an environment, you find dissolution, you find stagnation, you find stuntedness, you find death. And so we need to reread Romans 14, 19, which says... Let us work for the things that work for peace and the building up of one another. Now let me give you a definition of this word peace. Here it is. It is an environment that we deliberately create in which every human being is permitted to grow and become everything they were meant to be. It is an environment of protection and nurture. Now let me say it again. The peace of Christ is an environment that we deliberately intend to create in which there is growth and everybody's growing and permitted to become what they were meant to be and there is nurture and protection there. And when you apply this principle to your marriage, to your family, it explodes with possibility. I have this friend who, who, who grew plants. She, 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 she had, it looked like a jungle in her house. She, she not only had a green thumb, she had five green things. And, and, and she would tell us, you know, we'd go over to the house whether we needed to know it or not. She'd give us a little lesson in horticulture. Now you've got to take these plants and you've got to give them plenty of fertilizer and water them as much as, as soon as they get dry, you need to water them and spray a little spray on them about three or four times a day and be sure they get a lot, of, a lot of fresh air and sometimes sit them in the sunlight, sing to them, I even pray with mine, no rock music in my house, might offend my plants. You know what she was doing? She was creating an environment of nurture and protection. That's the example of peace. Point number two. Where should you find Where is it to be found? That is, where should I press this upon? What should I press this upon? Well, in this passage, this, in the context of this passage, he's talking about the congregation at Colossae. And he's saying, watch this, he's saying that if there is a congregation where there is anybody who has another agenda, any other agenda, 
than to create an environment of nurture and protection and growth, that person should not be tolerated. And he's concerned that there might be those kinds of folks in the church at Colossae. They don't belong there. But this kind of environment can be found anywhere. In the 16th chapter of, of Acts, it's found in a jail. For there at midnight, Paul and Silas, with their hands in cuffs and their feet in stocks, with peace in their heart, are singing praises to God in prayer. And there's a little phrase that we often miss. It says, and all the other prisoners were listening, so that this peace that was in their heart flowed out into the jail and affected it. It's found there. In the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, it's found in the Mediterranean, and a storm comes up, and it looks like and everything's going to disintegrate, and the Apostle Paul stands up, and with this guy who knows nothing about sailing, and in the Tibble paraphrase, he says, Cool it, guys. I've got a word from God. Everything's going to be all right. And there's one of those little phrases again. It says, And they were encouraged, and they had something to eat. Now watch this carefully. When you apply that principle to your dorm floor, when you apply that principle, that, this principle, to your family, to your marriage, it just blooms with possibilities. And it says this, that there is a place where people can come, where people can find sanctuary, a haven, and they know their wounds will be cared for there. That's why the little boy who grows up under abuse and neglect from his parents loves to spend his time down the street with his little friend who has these parents that are loving and kind, who nurture and protect him, and he's, he's drawn there because he knows that's a sanctuary and a haven. And when we have a home like that, it impacts the world around us. Now, I need to go a little deeper right here. I need to tell you that the origin of this peace is your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now watch this. You can't have a peaceful environment if there's no peace in your heart. You can't create a place where people find nurture and protection and comfort. You can't create that wherever you are if you don't have it here. Now I want to take the time to read this verse of Scripture, this passage. If you, you can turn with me if you'd like. It's the little epistle of James, third chapter. This is what he says. Who among you is wise? Well, I've got it marked here, so I'll give you time to turn. Some of you are turning. James is over near the end. Go to the end of the Bible and work back. Don't need those notes. Okay? No telling. I want to fly out of this Bible. Get bread on the way home. No, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his, own, by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above implied that is in your heart, that's where he's dealing, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now I have a feeling that 
that there are many of us this morning who do not bring to church a heart full of peace. There's anger there, long-standing resentment and bitterness. Maybe it's because your parents abused you or neglected you or did not affirm you, did not love you like you needed to be loved, and you're angry about that. Maybe it's because you have an associate who has maligned you or betrayed you. Maybe it's because you just are angry at yourself because you can't measure up to self-imposed standards. But you bring to your marriage, and you bring to your dorm, you bring to your business, and you bring to church a heart full of anger. Peace is not there. It begins there. And it needs to be pressed to your marriage. Now, I can only speak as a husband and a father, so that's how I want to speak. And I want to ask you guys this morning, you, 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 you husbands and want-to-be husbands, you guys and, 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 and fathers, let, let me say to you, let me ask you this question. Do you, have you created an environment of nurture and protection for your home? You need to ask yourself, as I need to ask myself, is my wife a better woman of God because she married me? Do I love my wife like she needs to be loved? Now, you may love her like you want to love her, like the guy who told me one time, he said, sure, I love my wife, and I let her know it. I, I, I invite her to watch the football game with me on Monday nights. I mean, I mean how, how much can you love somebody? Well, that, that's, that's how, how you want to love her, but is that how she needs to be loved? And we need to ask ourselves, are we creating for our wife and our children an environment of protection and nurture so that they become everything God meant for them to be? That's a heavy question. And this rule of peace must be pressed upon our relationship with our kids. Now you may ask, well, how in the world is that? How do you do that? How do you create an environment of where, where they can grow and become all they need to be? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are three basic things, three basic ways. Number one is by understanding that your kids are, maybe, totally different from you. I mean, it's easy to get along with our kids if they think like we think and look like we look and act like we act. It just may be that your child doesn't want to wear his hair short. It just may be that your child doesn't think exactly like you and he may not even believe exactly like you. He's different. Second, by understanding that we need to learn from our kids as well as teach them. Ugh. I got this guy who was telling me one day, he said, my son loved athletics, so he was, he was involved in sports, and he said, man, I was the perfect father. I helped him be a be involved in sports. He said, in fact, I stood on the sideline and screamed at him about what he should do. I mean, you know, you know you've seen those, haven't you? I never was like that, but I, I've seen guys like that. You know, and, and they're out there doing their best, and, and dad's over there screaming, you know, every move they should make, and the kid's, you know, checking dad out. And he said, after every game, he said, I, I would quiz him, I'd tell him what he should have done, what he did, why you should have done this, you should have done that. And he said, I could just feel my child withdrawing from me. And one day it dawned on me, I'm not the player. 
I'm not even the coach. I'm just a spectator. So he said, I got me a seat up in the grandstands, and I sat there, and I watched as a spectator. And after every game, I asked my son to tell me about the game and why they did certain things, you know, and learning from him. And he said, boy, it just turned a light on, and my son began to draw close to me. Number three, by understanding that, that you're not like your kid, by being able to be taught by them, and by understanding that sometimes your child needs to be protected, and sometimes they need to be unprotected. Now watch carefully. Gordon MacDonald said that, that every child at different part times in his life is a tulip or an oak. He said, one morning I went in, my daughter, a teenage daughter, was crying. She was about to have to make a decision. If she made a decision one way, well, one group of peers would, would not like it. If she made a decision the other way, another group of peers would not like it. And she was crying, and she said, Dad, I need to know what to do. And he said, Honey, you need to decide. Are you a tulip or are you an oak? And she said, Huh? <laughs> he said, You need to decide. Are you a tulip or are you an oak? An oak is this big, strong plant, and, and folks, you know, um, walk around it or they get hurt if they try to walk over it. And so this oak stands there and, and the people walk around it. But he says tulips can be trampled on. They can be crushed and bruised. And so we put little fences around the tulip beds and we mark off little walkways around the tulip beds because we want to protect them from people trampling on them. Now, honey, you need to decide. Are you an oak or a tulip? Two days later, he said, she came into my bedroom and said, Dad, I'm a tulip. Sociologists tell us that 50% of the collegiates who step on college campuses come from single-parent homes or from homes where both the mother and father work day after day. And so these kids grow up day after day after day after day in an, in a, in an environment of unprotectedness. And they bring anger and they bring grief and they bring images of themselves that are distorted to their campus. And the sociologists say that the impact on the next generation because of that is going to be horrendous. Point number three. We need to let the peace of Christ be number one priority. Now that word rule there is a... Is a Stunning word. It just reaches out and grabs you. It demands attention and authority. Let the peace of Christ rule in your life. And what he's saying is this, is that first priority must be to create an environment of nurture and protection. It's more important, fathers, than being rich. It's more important than being successful. It's the most important thing you can do is to create an environment where the people around you can become what they were meant to be. That ought to have first priority. It comes first. I can just see it. Jesus standing in the starboard of the ship, shouting to the storm, Peace! Be still, and peace ruled. And I can just see him talking to the demoniac who had been cutting himself and violently scaring the neighborhood. And Jesus walks up to him and says, Peace, man, and peace ruled. 
It's interesting that that word peace there, we get the word umpire from that. Now, an umpire doesn't make the rules. He enforces them. Most times are wrong, but he enforces the rules. And what he's saying is this, that in every situation of life, the peace of Christ must be the deciding factor. If I make this choice and if I live this way, will it create a peaceful environment or a destructive one? You know who Max Lucado is? You don't listen to me, but you'll listen to him. Max Lucado said that he, after 17 years, he went to get a physical. And he said they... Uh, did all those things you do when you do physical. They punched on him and they gouged him and they put these old slimy suction cups on his chest and all that stuff and made him wear that old gown, you know, that you kind of have to hold together in the back. He said, they took blood out of my arm, which is always painful. They made me fill up a cup, which is always embarrassing. And he said, then they put me in a room and said, wait for the doctor. And he said, I was sitting in this room, sitting on this little cold stool, <laughs> waiting for the doctor to come in. I'd been punched on, I'd been gouged, I'd been embarrassed, I'd been hurt. And he said, in comes the doctor. Now Max Lucado says, I want you to take a trip down memory lane. I want you, in the memory of your mind, I want you to see all those faces of the people in your life. Your kids your husband or your wife, your friends, your employees, all of their faces, freeze them and freeze frame. And he said, now as you look at those faces, remember that there are people who feel just like you felt when you were punched on. There are people who have gouged and punched and abused, who have been humiliated, who are sad, discouraged, cold, hanging on to this gown to keep from being embarrassed and hanging on to something to keep from falling off a cool stool. And he said, remember, there are hundreds of people in your life just like that. See their faces? Paul says, that's your mission field. What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray this morning that in these relationships of life that we would create out of our own initiative and commitment an environment that attracts a troubled world and nurtures, protects a troubled people. And Father, help us not to fail to see the faces, hundreds of faces of people who are longing for peace. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now we ask invitation, an invitation in our church, if you're a guest and always have guests, if you, if, if, if you've never come to know Jesus Christ and you'd like to place your faith in Him, this peace does not rule your heart because you don't know the Prince of Peace. Come and give it, put aside 
any other thing to have him, to claim him, to trust him, place your faith in him, to begin to follow him. Or maybe you need, just because of the trouble that's in your own heart, just to make those decisions that God has been urging you to make, perhaps to join the church or whatever. While we stand and sing, we invite you to come.